Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Eating Crow Podcast. Here's your host, Pete Durand. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Eating Crow Podcast. I have the hammer, Holly Hammer. Welcome, Holly. Hey, uh, Pete. It's the coolest name for uh, uh, an attorney, by the way. Yes, yes, I agree. That's probably why I started the firm. Yeah, and you had to name it, you know. I was born, <laughs> born to have hammer law. <laughs> by the way, you just teed up one of the best tidbits of the podcast. You were born, by the way, Tell us the story about why it's so famous and such a big deal about when you were born. I was the first baby born in the entire U.S. Uh, in 1976. I'm the bicentennial baby. So Don't January 1st, 1976. Is there a picture or a plaque of you somewhere? I'm surprised you didn't find it with your internet sleuthing. Yes, there's articles and I was on the front cover of the post when I was born and they did an article when I was 30. Uh, Where is baby new year? That was a leading question. Of course, we know that. That is spectacular, by the way. Yes, thank you, thank you. It's it's got to be nowhere. (laughs) Do you do you hang it over Mac, your brother's head, all the time about how much cooler you are than him? Uh, No, I lose every time since he's the lacrosse player from UNC. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stomp that next time I see him for sure. So my official name is Holly Elizabeth Frost Hammer after Betsy Rock. That is spectacular. And I do love America. I do not have any American flag ducks twos, but I love America. You can't get any more patriotic than being the first baby born in 1976. I, I think I was born loving America. That's so awesome. yeah, so happy I, to be here. I'm glad you're here. And we were just talking before we started recording. You know, you're an entrepreneur, right? You started your own law firm. Yes, I am. And your comment was, I'm exhausted. I'm doing this all myself. Yes. Uh, we can all relate. So we're going to drill into what led you to start your firm, but there's so much in your background. I'm going to talk to that leads up to this uh, about why you decided to start your own practice. But some of the things you've done in the past where you went to school, we got to pull some of that into your background. So um, sure. you're a UVA undergrad with a, a bachelor's in English, I understand. Yes, I am. Yeah. Did you Did you know you wanted to go to law school when you were doing that? No, I actually was uh, wanted to be a sports medicine uh, PT, specializing in sports medicine injuries. My dad played football at UVA, and I was a hardcore soccer player all through high school and um, had a pretty severe injury, and they kind of saved me, and my PT, Jay, was my hero. So I went to UVA, did a PT pre-med program for two years, and was getting you know, sees working my ass off, excuse me, working my butt off. And I realized as much as I loved it, that was not my strong suit. So um, love English, decided I think I'm going to do English and go to law school. So I kind of, I'm an attorney by default. I was not born wanting to be an attorney. There are no attorneys in my family. My um, grandfather on my dad's side worked in the steel mills in Pittsburgh. So he came from a real poor family, went to college on scholarships, 
my mom came from a very poor family, went to, went to college. And so I don't come from a family where there are attorneys or doctors. And so I'm the first one. Wow. And hopefully you can out debate Mac anytime you guys get into discussion. Uh, that's a losing battle every time. <laughs> he talks too much. <laughs> he, he does. So Mac's, uh, wow. or Holly's brother, Mac is, is also a good friend of mine and was one of my first guests in my old rival health exercise videos. And the funny story about that is when I asked Mac to be in the video, he sent back an, an email question. Can I wear a tank top? <laughs> oh, he still wears them. Yeah. <laughs> Which I have just time. not stopped giving him a heart. I said, sure, you can wear a tank top if you want to stand next to me with one, by the way. Yeah, he, he's, he's still flexing all the time. And he, he, is. Is, so he is. He is. It's not changed. So athletics obviously run in the family. You, you played soccer. Your brother played lacrosse at, at North Carolina. Your dad played football at UVA. What is it about when you decided that, you know, PT wasn't your thing? What drew you to law? Um, I think I love the, the English language. Mm. You know, I love the art of writing. I love reading. I loved, I, if I could spend my time in English lit, I would. I just love learning and I love that sort of, I've just always loved it. And I guess being an attorney allowed me to craft the language to really read and look at you know, really well written pieces that also were able to establish an opinion. So I'm drawn to the law because you have case law that you, you can use to interpret one of two ways to support your position. Mm -hmm. And I like the creativity. And I think I also like winning. So I started off as a litigator in LA. I did it for 10 years. And to be frank, I like winning. So I, it was like, win-lose and I like to win. I like to go to court and I like to win. Well, that's why you're my attorney. Yeah. Because and you're I like, like to argue and I'm, I'm really tough. So it's, I don't down. There's so much there too, right? I want to, I want to go back to one of the first things you said, which is you, you appreciate the English language, English language. I look, I can't even talk right in English. Language. I love let's, it. Yeah. Let's figure out how to get that out. But I've always been fascinated. You know, you went to UVA, and I, I go back to the, the trips I took with my kids to D.C., and my fascination with the Founding Fathers in the way they crafted the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the wording, and the use of the English language is so – you just don't see that today. I know. People That's don't write – yeah, they don't write or talk like that. Or talk like that. And it, the, 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 the proper use of context and grammar and – uh, the, I think it's just elegant. I think the way that they wrote and spoke was elegant. Uh, I, I, I like to point out to my kids that some of the music they listen to is not quite as elegant. Right. And I, I love the non-elegant music. I mean, I like mm -hmm. old school hip hop, yep. you, you know, like you don't believe the stuff I listen to. But I guess I believe that our government and the Constitution is important and that I want to have leaders that speak and come across as eloquent and you know just just people that i like to listen to and I, I like the dignity and decorum of the profession i like the way that attorneys would go to court and it's always big on respect respect mm -hmm. for the judge respect for one another if you're dealing with good attorneys but for me it was that level of i guess professionalism respect um 
and knowledge. I think knowledge is so important. I mean, I'm always pushing my nephews to get off TikTok. That's the newest fight. It's yeah. a battle to get them off those. And I push education. And I sometimes worry, you know, it's a lot of star hurt that it's more, I'd rather read a book even when I was little than anything else. And I just, I worry that we don't see that as much. We don't, so, we don't. It's funny. I, uh, two of my three kids were, were voracious readers. Yeah. The third one wasn't and he is now, right? So he's, yeah. he's, he's much more gravitated towards reading than anything else. And he reads just about anything. So we, I had a rule with my, with my youngest. Uh, I said, you can't see a movie until you've read the book. Yeah, that's so important. And I feel like it, it's easier to put them on, you know, the iPad than to fight the battle. So there was yeah. a, there's a, uh, an, an antique store down in uh, Cameron village. And mm. my son, when he was, you know, nine or 10 used to love to go in there with us and look around, but he would gravitate toward the old book section. Like they have the incredible old books. And he would, the, the owner of the store would come over and my 10 year old would grab him and say, come and show me this one and tell me about this one. And, and, and he said, tell me about the author and then tell me about the characters. The guy's looking at me like, I said, believe me, it doesn't, it's not as impressive as it sounds. He's a normal kid. But uh, when he was at school, they, they had a fireman come in and said, you know, we're going to talk about what happens. There's a fire in your home and what you do. And the fireman said, you, you know, you get up, you leave, you don't take anything. And Sammy raised his hands and he said, could I bring my books? And he had a bookshelf That's at the end so of his bed. Cool. So he, he loves it. And I, you know, you said a couple things here. One of the things besides professionalism, respect, and the eloquence, I love the fact that you drilled into knowledge, right? Yeah. Constant, constantly seeking knowledge. TikTok right. doesn't provide any knowledge. No. It might be slightly entertaining, but for the hour you sink yourself into that, you could have learned something. Right, exactly. You know, when you, when, you, uh, when you went to law school, by the way, uh, undergrad at UVA law school at Pepperdine. Yeah. So complete, a complete outlier. No one in my, I'm all East Coast family. Everyone grew, I grew up in Northern Virginia, Fairfax, um, and everyone's East Coast. My one brother still lives. My baby brother played at Georgetown. He played lacrosse there. He never left Fairfax. In fact, wow. bought a house in the neighborhood we grew up in. So um, wow. I, you know, I am the outlier. And I remember when I told my parents, it was kind of a, a last minute decision. I had gotten into a lot of schools uh, around where I lived, you know, and was leaning towards George Mason or uh, uh, I think that was probably where I was going to go. My plan was to be fiscally responsible. Mm -hmm. I could live at home, save a lot of money. And I finally decided life is just too short. It's one big adventure and I'm going for it. And I packed my car. I knew no one out there. I had seen the campus once and I went. And my parents looked at me like I was from outer space. They could not believe that I was doing this. So I just, I've always been a risk taker. I always kind of believe that life is short. And so I had the easier option. And the, I guess the responsible one where I would have come out, out of law school with less debt. Mm. But I felt like it was, if I was going to be in the library studying for hours, I wanted to be at the window where I could look out at the visage of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. I, needed to be, I needed to be inspired to do the type of work I had to do. You'll and never regret I, it. 
I, no, it was the best time of my life. I would run on the beach behind the, the you know, celebrity houses in Malibu. And I just remember looking and being like, I can't believe this is my life. Because it was the natural beauty that drew me there in the water. I never surfed, but I love swimming. Huge mm. swimmer in the ocean. Um, I'll swim for, you know, every time we go to the beach, I'm, I'm in the water with my nephews all day. And I do a lot of swimming. I was a lifeguard um, through high school and summer college. So it was just like my my people, you know. So you're not you're not a, you're you're not a big fan of Shark Week. I'm not afraid of sharks, and <laughs> I don't watch it. <laughs> I know. You know I, I just don't watch it. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you said your your parents looked at you like you were crazy. We moved to we lived in Laguna Beach for a couple of years. Uh, and I, you know, for me, that ruined me, right? I mean, I, you know, that weather and the environment—it's it able to work out outside all the time. And you know, people out there—they don't spend any time in their homes; they're outside no. all the time. And yeah. I loved it. Uh, North Carolina to me is a little bit of a nice balance between you know, four seasons, you're outdoors more. Uh, my wife is a Midwest girl, and and you know, she loves the the fact that she can throw a sweatshirt on during football season, and I bet kind of dig into that. But so. When you when you left Pepperdine, you you Pepperdine, you did a uh, I hadn't heard this term before, in a, a judicial extern. What Never does that mean? A judicial extern. <laughs> well, I'm not in law, so what would I you know what do I know? I mean, I well, what that means I clerked for a federal judge in downtown LA. Um, my second year, that was what I did. So I was with Judge Nagel in federal court downtown. And the most interesting fact of being a judicial intern, she'd allow me to come into some settlement conferences and she really nurtured me, but I was there when September 11th hit. Oh. And so I, rem I will never forget that day because we were behind in Los Angeles and I hadn't watched the news that morning. Mm -hmm. And so I drove downtown and there were all these, you know, Hummers and everything all over the the roads on uh, the freeway, and I got there, and there were all these federal guards around the building. And being a naive twenty four year old, I walked up and said, "Well, I need to work." And he said, "Have you watched the news?" I said, "No, what's going on?" And so I was, you know, a little oblivious, but I I will never forget being there, and you know, being at a building that they were shutting down all of downtown. So a judicial extern just means you clerk for a judge for a year, you write the opinions, you look at the law, um, and you sit in on conferences sometimes. That's kind of it. Nothing. And what, what was your, when you did that, were you drawn more into your law career? Did that say, did that reemphasize it, ignite you? What was sure. it about that? Oh, did, huh? Good, tell us about I, that. I mean, watching, I look, I believe in following the laws. I'm a complete outlier. I am a stickler for the laws. So I guess I just like seeing what our legal system does. I mean, it's and, and what this woman had accomplished. For me, I think mainly it was working for a woman who had gotten into a position like that because I went to law school in, in 2000 to 2003. And when I was in law school, you did not have many women in positions like this. You did not have female partners at law firms, and you certainly didn't have women starting law firms. Sure. So 
that was kind of, I picked a female judge and that was kind of my first taste of what women can do. And I would say that's part of what inspired me to probably be where I'm at now. It just kind of started that thinking, you know, that's that awesome. maybe I could do this too. And I didn't get that message anywhere else. That's fascinating. And then when you went on to be a litigator, what was it? You said almost eight years in LA, is that right? Yeah, 10 years. 10 years in LA. Um, what what did you learn as a litigator that has helped you build your law firm? Um, to be tough as nails. Got it. I had to put up with uh, so many bad attorneys, you know, disrespectful attorneys, argumentative attorneys. Um, I was younger, and so half the time I would show up, you know, when I started practicing, I was... 27. And so I'd show up and people would ask me if I was the court reporter. That's who takes notes during the deposition. It's always women. So I put up with things like that. I put up with showing up in a room full of men and being the youngest and being female. And going through that and earning their respect made me tough as nails. And I used it to my advantage because I would play the role they thought I was young. I was timid and then I'd frequently, you know, sneak attack and, and come in and nail them um, at depositions or with points of law. And so that was the role I was cast into because of who I was. But I also found a way to take the way they were going to treat me and use it against them, you know. You know, so, I, I, as I'm going through the podcast, I always look or take down notes for what I think the title of the podcast should be. And uh, there might be other ones, right, that, that trump this, but are you the court reporter, to me, is the best line I've heard so far. Yes, right? yes. That's that a, that... would be asked. I'd show up at a big office, and the receptionist would, would look at me and say, oh, are you the court reporter? And I'd say, no, no, I'm, I'm the attorney here to take the deposition. You have no <laughs> idea. All the time. All the time. So you, you, you spent, you know, 10 years out in L.A. What pulled you back to the East Coast? Family. family. Now this okay. is where it gets like, it was adventuring going to California. Mm -hmm. It was more adventuresome coming back because mm -hmm. I, you know, I couldn't, but it was a horrible economy and every recruiter was telling me we can't do anything until you pass the bar exam. And Mac, my brother, has had his first baby and I was the godmother and I fell in love with that little boy. Okay. And to be frank, family is everything to me. Um, they are my rock. And so I wanted to get back so badly to be close to my family again. And I tried and I tried and I tried. And after two years, I finally decided, screw it, I'm just going. And I had, you know, six figure job, um, doing well at the firm. And I decided, to move to North Carolina, I had to retake the bar exam, mm -hmm. had no job, and I just did it. I just left and said, I'm taking a shot. And, uh, then you I, and that, that, to be frank, is, is a lot like starting a company. It's like I jumped off a cliff, yeah. and I had no idea what was going to catch me. But I, I had faith, and I had faith that somehow it would work out, and I was going for it. And you, is that when you ended up at Hutchison? No, I moved here. I had to take the bar exam mm -hmm. to break into this market. I started off um, 
Jesus. I think I started off as a contract attorney. I worked yeah. at Smith Anderson. Ah, that's right. A couple other places. Um, and Raleigh is a kind of an old boys club and it's very insulated. So unless you went to college with somebody or unless you know somebody, it was brutal to break in. And here I thought I was this great litigator from LA. I had this great resume. I was really impressive, you know, in my own mind. I thought, God, they're going to be lucky to have me. And yeah. to be honest, a woman from, people think people from California are crazy. Mm -hmm. in this so that actually worked against me. Um, and it took me a long time to build up the credentials. You know, I was at Oracle. I got into Oracle or Techlec and that yeah. was fantastic. Then they got acquired by Oracle and I'm like, for God's sake, I just finally got the great job. And now this is going away. You know, they do centralized ops in, out in, in yeah. California. So they laid off all non-essentials. California only, screwed you again. California screwed me again. <laughs> like, I'm not going back. I just got here. I have killed myself. I took the bar exam here is three days. And a lot of states give reciprocity. So you don't reciprocity, have to yeah. yeah. Everyone hates California. They made me take the entire thing over again. I, so I was like, I'm not going back. So then I finally found Hutchison yeah. at, while I was at Oracle going okay. through all the MNAs. Yeah. And, and Fred is someone we'll have in the program down the road, one of the nicest human beings on the planet. Oh, and Fred did, is. Fred is who I tried strive to be like every day I practice. Yeah, the bar's high there. He's he's kind of the godfather of startup or venture capital backed uh, law firms. Really is. Uh, I have to ask if you think about when you came here from L.A. If you came here today, would you experience the same thing? I you know I don't know that it would be as difficult. I think. I like to think things, well, I think a lot of the diversity and inclusion that's going on right now, mm -hmm. I think since I moved here, we had the Time's Up women's movement. Um, to be frank with some of the old traditional larger law firms, I don't know. I don't know if that's ever going to change. Um, they are very, they are not entrepreneurs. They don't have a mindset on being more inclusive mm -hmm. and seeing what different people could possibly bring to the table maybe trying something outside of the box um they just i i don't know i i unfortunately don't know that it would be a heck of a lot different you know we had uh, don thompson on the show ceo of walk west and don is a certified diversity and inclusion expert and we, we talked a little bit about this and one of the comments you just made is interesting to me and you you probably see this when people hear dni they they come at it from one of two extremes right i hate it or i love it People right. in the middle had not made a decision, but what you're getting at, and, and Don and I talked about the, the concept in, in a sense of a, of, of a quota, right? I have to have so much diversity in my, my team. I think the challenge there, and Don talked about it, is he wants people to rethink the recruiting process. And I'll, right. I'll tee this up two ways. Let's say I posted a job for a software developer and 100 people apply for the job. Well, if 135-year-old white males apply for the job, that's my selection pool. Right, right. right. But you're in the market. You've applied for work at these particular law firms with a very, and I will use the, the word diverse set of skills. 
as right. a female, as a litigator from a completely different market, right? Okay. To me, right. that would be that would be extremely valuable and interesting. I'd I'd crave that to say, look, this is somebody that's gonna think of this thing differently. Right. So you're in the pool. The right. fact that they right. wouldn't choose you is shocking to me, right? Well, but you and I are entrepreneurs. One thing I think that led me to starting a law firm is that a lot of times people think in the box and you see all these ideas where things can be expanded or things you're excited about or things maybe they're not doing mm -hmm. and you think could be done. And a lot of times I feel like I'm shut down. And so I think you and I have the same diversity and inclusion to me is not the color of your skin. It's about thinking outside of the box and not necessarily thinking that you have to do things this way, that they have to be from this school. They have to have this, you know, it's like the, the more you do that, the less you open it up for people who are different. Yeah. And I think that part of diversity and inclusion means just bringing different people to the table and it benefits everyone because someone who's from a different state, for example, is gonna have different views that would be helpful. I think the more knowledge you have at a company from as many different people as you can get to the table, educated, you know, smart, creative people, the better your company is going to be. But yeah. it seems like for some reason people hear diversity and inclusion and they get angry. They think they're going to make me hire somebody who's a different color, even if everyone else is better or they're gonna, I have to do this. And that's not what it's about. It's just kind of challenging yourself a little to think, okay, well, maybe they're not necessarily what we would think. Maybe they come from a poor sure. background or have had, you know, and, right. and it's just about being more inclusive. Not yeah, and that's what Don was getting at is it's not, it's, it's rethinking the process when you have a, a, a set of talent in front of you, not looking for the same thing, being open-minded. Right. And apparently, right. uh, apparently um, everyone other than Fred Hutchison um, seems to think in North Carolina that unless you, if you went to UVA or Pepperdine, you're not welcome. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, everybody does. They just don't want you to have practiced in California. Oh, that's what that's it is. The actual practice out there is what bothers people. And really, if you do, if you haven't gone to UNC Duke, Wake Forest Law School, you're kind of screwed. Yeah. So, yeah, that's yeah. the problem. When I first moved here, uh, and again, I, I've I've been here almost 20 years and lived in California, Virginia, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, all over the doggone place. I felt like if I didn't have, you know, khaki pants, a light blue shirt, and a dark blue blazer, exactly, I didn't fit in. That's exactly how I felt. I felt like I had to fit in this box. And, yeah. you know, khaki pants, blazer, bow tie, yeah. a little Southern accent. And I was like the total outlier. I'm a, here I am from California, you know, I'm, I'm more of a free spirit. I, we used to wear jeans to the office, of course, designer and sure. really nice, you know, well, it was all real fancy, but you well, know. Why well, do I have this image of Reese Witherspoon in, uh, um, in Legally Blonde, Blonde walking, you walking into the office with your purse on your arm, you know, and your- Yeah, yeah. I mean, that the male partners would wear their cool jeans and their little, eyes had shirts and the great shoes and it was very cool you know it was just completely different and 
so here I come and you know I think I've I just always have been a bit of an outlier and I think that's part of what as entrepreneurs drives us to do what we do we don't quite fit the mold and I think we're also very creative and I don't like having bosses to be frank I decided you know what I can do this and I'm gonna do it I don't know, it, it's just kind of like how I decided to Pepperdine. I never wanted to start a law firm. It wasn't my goal or my plan. Right. I meet a lot of people who had strategic plans for years and it was their life goal. And I just kind of got to the point where I felt like I needed a sabbatical. I was burned out. I, you know, I needed to figure out where I was going next. And I had clients freak out and I'll never forget, Fred was very encouraging. He said, mm -hmm. why don't you do it? And I, no one had ever said to me in my entire life, why don't you do it? My family wants me to play it safe. My parents want sure. me to be safe. And that was the first time I thought, you know what, maybe I can do it. And, and so I did it. You know, and Fred did that with another good friend of ours, Ken Moretti. You know, Ken went out and started his own firm. Really? Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and by the way, Ken was my counsel at my first startup when he was inside of Hutchison. Yeah. Yeah. And then he went and did his own firm and like, you realize, holy crap, this is exhausting. Yeah. And was working 90 hour weeks. I had lunch with him one day and said, dude, why don't you come inside and be your inside counsel? And then we worked together for five years and became not only one of my closest advisors, one of my closest friends and, and most trusted colleagues. And now he's back at Hutchison. Yeah, you know, yep. and he's, he's with Fred. So um, I, I love Fred. I love Fred. And I can see why he did that. One thing I'm finding as an entrepreneur, a solo, mm -hmm. is I get really lonely. I think I thrive mm -hmm. on the energy of other people. I mean, I get excited being part of a team. Yeah. And so that is what I miss the most. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a testament to people with Fred's mindset. He he basically, his firm, so Hutchison, just so folks know, is primarily the, the law firm for all startups in the RTP area. So he's built a niche. So he's, he's around entrepreneurs every day. He yeah. understands it. He understands you've got to scratch that itch and feed that. But you're right. So we, we talked about before the podcast, and this is now we're going to shift gears into your firm and what you're experiencing and what other people can benefit from. Uh, it is lonely, right? So. Yeah. Uh, even starting this podcast with uh, you know a day job, I'm I'm working nights and weekends by myself doing this, but I like it. I'm actually finding myself at six o'clock in the morning editing a video, smiling because it's so much fun. Well, and, I know you. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little bit of a high energy guy. That's you're true. Pro you're probably like doing a training for an Ironman too. I mean, uh, I'm training. My training has definitely shifted to survival. <laughs> That, oh my God, that is my training too. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah, I'm just trying myself, to survive. I try to just give myself with the workouts, like they've all gone, you know, not well with the gyms being closed. And I'm like, my training is survival. I will get back to that. But right now, let's survive. Yeah. And I've got, you know, my kids are all up and out of the house. So my, my daughter lives in Charlotte. She's been married a couple of years. And, and by the way, her husband played soccer at Duke. So I got the That's whole Duke so thing cool. in, in nausea. And then my other son graduated from state, played soccer there as well. But uh, he took a job in commercial real estate in January. Yeah. And he said, I want to live at home for a year, save money and buy a house. So do you guys mind? I said, if you got a plan, I'm all for it. Well, then COVID hit. Commercial real estate has been a joke. Yeah. So 
when March 15th happened and we said, nobody's going back to the office, he and I drove to my office and took all the dumbbells and a bench out of our gym in our office and brought it to the garage. I've been training with this 23 year old division at Digimon in, in Holly. I'm, I'm beat up. I'm, I'm, I tore a muscle in my elbow. I'm, yeah, he crushed me. And so I said, awesome. I said, I got to back off. And he just looked at me like, yeah, I knew I'd kick your ass. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so, awesome. You know, you said a couple things about, uh, you know, what it's like to be an entrepreneur and, and particularly with a, a law firm, right? You got to wake, wake up and grind every day. It's, yeah. it's all about billable hours. So it's not a, you know, make money while you sleep thing. You got to grind it. Yeah. What about, I, I got, I've got a couple questions that'll help me understand and our listeners understand. When you think about Hammer Law, because of the nature of your personality and your background, what kind of clients are A, attracted to you or are you attracted to? Where, where, where's your customer base coming from? Gosh, I just love people. Okay. So my customer base, um, most of them are referrals from other attorneys in the community to okay. be frank. My, in terms of eating crow, I know nothing about social media. I am trying to figure that out. I've uh -huh. hired um my third company to help me with my website. That's wow. another huge eating crow. Um, so, but my, my company, basically I help people who need help. So I don't do litigation anymore, but I help companies with employment laws, um, business matters, and I help individuals who want to have contract reviewed and negotiated. So severance agreement, employment agreements, non-compete agreements. Um, and so I work with an amazing group of people. Okay. I have a stable base of company clients that actually came with me when I left Hutchison. They insisted on coming. Wow. And um, yeah, I, the first couple of times I made them ask permission because I am very loyal and I had, I had no idea what to do. And I said, well, you can come, but you got to ask, you know, the partner first and then they said that's okay you don't have to do that if they want to come they can go oh and that's great i know so i'm i'm very loyal like in terms of you know that's nothing i'd ever do is poach clients or mm -hmm. i i respect fred i respect their firm and i care about all of them but so i have my corporate clients and with them i deal with anything and i've been blowing up with covid so in top talk of in terms of things being stressful, this year has been brutal because in March we had all the new laws hit about the family's first coronavirus yes. and everything that goes along with that. And so I'm in year two of starting a firm. Year one, I had three discs cervical spine fusion in my neck oh. and I worked, I worked through all of that. I never stopped working. Year two, corona hit and I'm in the situation that most attorneys will never go through. We have had the laws written and we're going through entirely new laws and learning it as we go. I mean, normally you have case law and the answers in advance. Here, you don't have those. You are learning you know, on the fly, day by day as the new guidance comes out. Mm -hmm. So I've done a ton of that. I mean, I don't know that I slept mar much in March and April between reading Law. It was reading laws. I mean, I've never done so much reading since law school and then helping clients implement compliance with what do we do with getting workers out of work? What are our policies? 
When can we bring them back? How do we protect them? What do we do with leave requests? And that's been, it, that's been incredibly tough because you're trying to run a business, you're trying to run the business and practice law. Um, yeah. So that's kind of what I do, but I also do workplace investigations, help with contentious termination, help with basic policies for startups, all of that stuff. Um, and, and executives, they're normally at the big companies in the area. And, you know, it's, I'm getting hired. What can you do to help me? And I know a lot about equity, so I can help with vesting, acceleration on change of control, look mm -hmm. at things like that, make sure they have the documents. And then severance agreements, same thing. Sometimes I get involved and negotiate if the facts warrant. Other times I'm behind the scene. I let my clients dictate my involvement in cost. So you're, it, oftentimes you're on a different side of the fence, right? Sometimes you're representing companies, helping them structure law, and sometimes you're representing people like me as an individual who might need somebody taking a look at my employment contracts, et cetera. Sure. So that's, that's like, but it's, I think, never, it's never contentious. I don't no? ever, and I say to every person who calls me, if you want to sue an employer, I don't do it. Find somebody else. My, my goal is to not work with anybody who wants to sue. You know, it's just to help with contracts and understanding and making sure you're protected. There's, and, and a lot of times you don't know what you don't know. So yeah. if you're getting a reload package, what are the repayment obligations? Or, you know, all sorts of things that I can do to help people make more money. That's what I do there. And I love it. Like I love helping people. So I can use my knowledge to help individuals make more money. And I can use my knowledge to help companies in very stressful situations. So you've used the word, you know, the terms helping people quite often there. I noticed in one of your passions is, is healing transitions. Yeah. So I want to touch on that as, as well as, as one of your, you know, as your primary volunteer, you know, objectives and passions. Tell us about what healing transitions does and why you got involved. Sure. I mean, basically my, my passion is helping people. Mm -hmm. That's why I became a lawyer. Um, and now with my own firm, I don't have to set the rates that I would at a larger law firm uh, to help people. I felt like the longer I did it, the higher my rates were getting and I couldn't help people and it quit being fun. Uh, and so okay. I wanted to be able to help more people. And that's really why I'm doing what I do. I'm never going to be rich. I have a big heart, you know, and, and but I feel like I'm helping people and that's why I went into law. And Healing Transitions is a nonprofit for um, homeless individuals with drug and alcohol problems. Mm -hmm. So alcoholism runs in my family, I'm an Irish Catholic. So, you know, at 30, I felt like I needed to stop drinking and I've been actively involved in recovery since then. And helping these people you know, it's kind of like the broken of the world. When I try to fundraise for healing transitions, I get messages like, well, they're just drug addicts. They did it to themselves. So oh. I don't want to donate to that. I'm going to donate to horses or, you know, fund children or ASPCA. And so there's so much social stigma over this when a lot of this happened with the opioid epidemic. I mean, there are normal people, normal children who's started with sports injuries and wound up addicted to oxycodone yeah. 
um, and then can't get it. And, and next thing you know, they're on heroin. Yeah. So I guess I believe everybody deserves a second chance. And yeah. that is, to be frank, I don't have much of a, a, a personal life because I'm either working or donating my time to help other people. Yeah, so you, you're, you're right. There are, uh, no one starts out thinking I want to be a drug addict. No, but that's right. unfortunately, I've asked people to donate and that's them. I mean, we are fighting a losing battle with fundraising because it's like people think they deserve it or why can't they just stop and they don't understand it's a disease. It's a diagnosed disease. Oh, it, it certainly is. And, and, you know, both my wife and my family have been, you know, impacted by alcoholism and, and, and drug use and uh, when it happens, it's completely debilitating. Yeah. Um, it is chemically, I mean, it's a chemical imbalance in your brain that causes this to happen. It's not like somebody right. wants to be doing these things. They just can't control it. And getting treatment is a very, very difficult thing to do. Yeah. Uh, and it takes volunteers and organizations like you guys to help them. Cause what I, what I, this is not just treatment. You're helping these people get back into life, right? And yeah. that's why it's called this. It's why it's called transitions. You're helping people right. stabilize their life, get a job, and there's and there's give and take. They have to do the things to stay in the program, right? Is that not yeah, mistaken? And so, and and, yeah. and it's completely free. So that's yeah. the difference. If someone like you or I ran into this type of problem, we have insurance and would go to a rehab facility. They're very expensive, and we're lucky enough to have that option. For the poor, they don't get a go to no. rehab. They can't afford it. It doesn't pay. And I mean, if you're struggling with addiction, this is the only place that has a men and women's facility that's totally free. We house them, we feed them, and they're there for several months. They start in the shelter and then they transition, you know, through the programs where by the end they have a room shared with another individual. And then you know, we help them get jobs. We help them have a network to stay connected to. So when they go out, they still have somewhere to go and to be safe. And, and so it's a lot of work and it takes money because it's not just 30 days and you're out. And it's, it's hardcore. I mean, they have to work. They have, they have expectations about what they're going to do for their recovery. They have to go to meetings. They have to find their own rides. And um, I don't know, I just, the people that you meet and the families that you see that come when they graduate and get their silver, you know, it's just a beautiful thing. So I did that as long as I could until I had the next surgery and yeah. at that point I had to step away yeah. and I'm still involved. I do pro bono legal service for them. Sure. Um, I think the first year I started the company, I got the award for pro bono hours and had donated over 50 or maybe a hundred. And you know, if you're starting a company, it's giving away work for free, but I did it and I still do it because I care, you know, I'm passionate about that. Well, and I, I hopefully we can get the word out through this podcast that you got to rethink your thought process when it comes to, you know, drug and alcohol addictions and what these people really need. And the fact that this is a very thoughtful program, the participants have to, they have to show up. They have to commit. They have to give. They have to give back to the program and show that they're, right. they you know, do. there and engaged, right? Yeah, and they continue to donate after it's over. So that's it. There's a lot of people that come back and help, right? 
Yeah, one thing my law firm continues to do is I donate every month based on my profit to Healing Transitions. Wow. That is something that I do the pro bono time and every month I continue to donate because, um, you know, it's important. And, and that's my goal. I listen to people like Tony Robbins who says, if you can't give it away when you're not making a lot of money, how are you ever going to give it away when you're making millions? So he right. talks about you know, 10%. And that got my thinking changed, you know, when I look at my revenue and when it's not so much, 10% isn't, I mean, it's tough. I always think, well, shoot, should I be spending it on marketing? Should I be? But I guess I just, I'm doing it because I think it's right. It's a great lesson for young entrepreneurs and even leaders out there who are blessed to have potentially a higher income. Right. Uh, to find a cause, not only donate donate your time, but donate your 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 dollars as well. And yeah, if you, it's scary. Yeah. You always think, well, shoot, should that be going to increase marketing budget? Yeah. But I don't want to leave the earth. You know, I'd rather make an impact than leave with less money than more. I guess. Well, I always like to wrap up a podcast feeling smaller than when I started. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're doing it all. I mean, you're doing it all. You're, you're running a business, you're giving your time, you're giving your money, you're doing all the right things and you have the world's biggest coffee mug or teacup, whatever uh, that is. Why do you think I need it? That it's is a, that's well, a massive I feel good Because I think as entrepreneurs, we frequently beat ourselves up and it's like, I'm not doing enough. I should be further along. So now you're, you're, you're doing all the right things and, and, you know, we'll, Let's get together and solve your social media problems. I've got some ideas there for sure. Yeah, I, I, if anyone listening is willing to be a mentor, I'm, I've been doing this all alone and I'm, I'm realizing I need a team. You're, but I, I, as entrepreneurs, one thing I'm realizing is, you know, I tried to do it all myself. And so realizing that there's a world of people that know more than you do and have walked the steps before, utilize that. I worry they're going to be annoyed. They don't have enough time. They're busy. But I've decided I am going to have to walk through that and hopefully people want to help me the way they've been helped. Uh, absolutely. It is, you have to reach out and get help. Even, you know, the people that helped me design the intros and the graphics and some other things for the podcast. I, I can't do that work. I don't, I don't even know how. Right. And right. We, we formed a good friendship. They've bought into the concept and they're good people. That's what I also enjoy. They're right. good, people. good people. Yep. Yeah. And That's so. That's who I work with is good people. The it one is. rule I have for my firm is if you're a jerk, I won't work with you. I don't take the case. And I never had that option before. It's incredibly liberating. It's the best feeling in the world to be able to say, this is not a nice person. I don't like the way they're talking to me. I don't think I'm going to work with them. I never got to do that before. I had to work with whoever I was told to work with. Yeah, one of our, uh, our guests, a former investor of mine, Todd Wiebush, his podcast is going to be released, I think, in a week or two. Uh, he has a, an investment group and the name of the investment group is actually called No Assholes, Inc. See, that's my rule, but I didn't want to say that. My, I have a no asshole rule. Yeah, I they don't. <laughs> I love it. It simplifies things, right? They don't, they don't invest in companies where they think the people are jerks no matter what the opportunity looks like. And the fact that you've got the freedom to choose clients that align with your beliefs is fantastic. Yeah, that's the biggest gift of all of this. Well, Holly, this has been fascinating. I didn't, realize all the, the different depths of your background and your personality and what's driving you to do what you do. And I am going to give Mac a hard time because he is clearly not the coolest hammer. Well, thank you. Yeah. That would, that would be nice. I'll I don't let think him know. They have, they have no idea what I do. So tell them I actually 
you know, do a lot. I will. It's been a pleasure having you in the program and I'm really grateful for your time and, and I can't wait Absolutely. for people to hear your story. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Let's catch up soon. You bet. Thanks for listening to another episode of Eating Crow, available on all podcast platforms. You can follow Pete on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram to join the Eating Crow community. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'll see you soon.